0: There is one. The name. name. Psalm 34 says who? Abimelech. Abimelech. And 1 Samuel 21 says the guy's name is? Uh Akish. So what is it? Abimelech or Akish? This is actually a rather straightforward one. Does anyone know (coughs) what Abimelech means? Of course you do, Serena. Um, the Ab in Abimelech is the same Ab from Abraham or Abner. It means my father or father. And Melech as in Melchizedek. Melechizedek. Melech means king. It means my father, the king. And there's a fellow by the name of Abimelech who over 400 years earlier was a king of the Philistines. In Genesis 20, verse 2, Abraham said to Sarah, His wife, she is said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. And then a generation later, Abraham's son Isaac does the same thing in Genesis twenty-six one. Now there's a famine in the land, beside the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. So either this is one old dude, or it's a title that gets passed down for the. When they say king, they're king. Carson uses the term kinglets. They're walled cities, and they're rulers of walled cities. The Philistines have five major walled cities, and, and uh, Gath is one of them. And so it just seems most obvious to me that this is just a, a hereditary title, like Caesar. He's Abimelech. He's, he's my father, the king. He's, his father's the king, his father's the king, so on and so forth. And so his, his actual name is Akish, and he's given the title Abimelech. It doesn't seem like a big problem. Either there's just one really old guy. I mean, that's possible too, I suppose, but probably not that old. Um, okay. Any other, any other thoughts or questions from Psalm 34 or the events of 1 Samuel 21? And yes, Mr. Crow, oh, microphone, sir.
1: Uh, I can probably look this up later, but when David leaves Gath, uh, does he take the sword with him?
0: or is... We don't know. We don't, don't know. know. Okay. He goes and hides in the cave of Adulam, where eventually Saul is going to find, you know. But but yeah, he goes from there to there. What I was trying to highlight this morning is, eventually David, hiding from Saul, sort of becomes Old Hat. And he begins to live in the wilderness, and he gathers. It's almost like the Robin Hood stories. He gathers. Yeah, there's a band of men around him, and they're, they're hiding out. But, but this is the beginning of it, which is, I think, part of the reason why he's so terrified and, and sh- shaken up by it. I mean, when he goes to meet with Jonathan, and he has no weapons and no supplies, I really think he's hoping on having an audience with Saul, in which case you show up empty-handed to prove I'm not a threat. I mean, that's kind of what he says to Saul over and over. Saul, I'm not your enemy. Saul, I'm not your enemy. Even when he cuts off the piece of his garment in the cave... Saul, I could have struck you down, and I didn't. I'm not your enemy, right? So I think that's why he's empty-handed. And then when so- S- Jonathan's like, "No, you want to get out of town," <laughs> my dad just tried to impale me. He just runs, and yeah. Um, so no, we, I don't know if this the sword of Goliath ever shows up again or not. I don't know whether they kept it there. Greg, Greg wants to. Okay, Greg wants to jump in. Hold on, Greg, use the microphone.
1: I was just curious that why David would take the sword anyway because as I recall from the original confrontation with the Goliath it was so heavy so big he couldn't he was even given David was given a normal sword that uh
0: Saul's armor was way too big for him yeah he couldn't
1: the, the Israelite he, the Israelite sword was too right. heavy right. for him Saul's would have been multiple or I mean uh Goliath's would have been multiple times that yeah I'm just surprised I mean wielding a heavy sword is worse than having no sword
0: right I again I think this is just demonstration of David doesn't really have a plan. Um, Again, it's is not, I don't think, part of the reason I took so much time going through this is I don't think we're supposed to read this is what a shrewd, clever, brilliant strategist David is. He, uh, you got anything? Well, I got Goliath. Okay. I mean, he really has nothing. And so that's something. You know, But if he, if, and it's not even clear he knows, we know that's, that Goliath is from Gath. It's not clear David knows that. Because if you remember, when he shows up, he's never heard of Goliath. So that when Goliath comes out, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who's bringing cursings down on the people of God? And he's so indignant. So he may not know he's from Gath. Um, So when he flees to Gath, he may not know. Oh, that's. But I think we're told, like, this just makes it even worse. You've got this. And like you said, it's not a normal sword. They would have wrecked. That sword looks a little big for you. (laughs) You know, that sword looks familiar. You know, they would have recognized it. So you're right. There is no, this is not a good weapon for him. Interestingly, about three chapters later in 1 Samuel, David's working for Achish. The way the story develops, it gets, it gets even weirder. Um, if, you, uh, if you jump, and actually he works for him for a couple of years. 27. What? 27, Yeah. Yeah, he goes back. This Achish guy is not that bright or something. I don't know. Because, yeah, if you go, go to uh, 1 Samuel 27. Um, David said in his heart, now I shall perish. One day by the hand of Saul, there is nothing better than for me that I should escape to the land of the Philistines Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer. In the borders of Israel. So between 21 and 27, David's just fleeing and he, it's just cat and mouse the whole time, back and forth, back and forth as Saul. And you'll see how Saul will find out David's in a city and he goes up and David flees and then he got in the wilderness and then Saul and he goes and flees. And in one instance, they're both going around a mountain but they happen to both go on opposite sides. I mean, it's really, there's a number of close calls in these chapters. And so he goes, so David rose. And went over he and 600 men. Now here's the difference. He showed up to Gath with 600 men. He's got a fighting band um, with him to Akish, the son of Moach, king of Gath. So in 27, he goes back to Gath, but he's got a small army with him. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahnom Jezre- of Jezreel, and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, if I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of your country towns that I might dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days of David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. And what David does is he goes on these raids and he lies or deceives Achish, um, here, let's go. David and his men went up, to the, um, went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerizites, the Amalekites, and those who were inhabitants of the land from of old. These are the scraggling leftovers from the book of Judges. If you remember when Israel took possession of the land, there were little um, groups of these people. And when Akish, verse 10, when Akish um, asked, Where have you made a raid today? David would say, Against the Negev of Judah, which is technically true. I mean, he's not out and out lying, but he's totally misleading Akish, Akish thinks David's fighting his countrymen. When really, I think David's cleaning up the stragglers of the Amalekites and these people, the Gereshites, that are still in the land that we know about from the end of Judges. Um, and so uh, against the Negev of the Jeremiahites or against the Negev of the Kenites, and David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to gas. So he'd leave no survivors so no word could get out to contradict his stories. Um, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. So for about a year and a quarter, a year and a third, David's playing this really dangerous game um, working for Achish, but really just clearing out the leftovers of the nations that were in the land. Um, it's it's bizarre. I mean, it's just it's a bizarre twist to the story. This would make a cool like mini series or something. So many twists and turns. But but it's very different when David shows up with six hundred armed men, and David shows up by himself with Goliath's sword. So other questions? Yeah, Zeb.
1: Just an observation um, on Goliath's sword or uh, in regards to uh, Saul's armor uh, with David, it doesn't say that it was too big for him. It says that he Heavy. didn't... No, it doesn't no? say that. It says that he hadn't tested it. He didn't know what he was doing with it. Keep in mind that like two verses later, he talks about how he had repeatedly punched bears to death. He was not <laughs> a weak... And then after he hits Goliath in the head with a stone, he then goes over, grabs the sword, kills him with it, head. and cuts off his head. Yeah. So he was. he had some level... Of physical proficiency right. to where he could have wielded it. That
0: is true. He was Goliath's sword was at least wieldable to the extent that he could. This, people think the stone killed Goliath. It didn't. The, Goliath's sword killed Goliath. I mean, the stone stunk into his head. You can guess whether it had brain damage or what. But he, he's killed by his own sword. Beheaded uh, by David with his own sword. So fair point. So so David had at least used it to some extent before. I mean, it was wieldable at some level if 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 not the most you know the most useful tool, it's still better I think probably than nothing so fair point Zeb other uh, thoughts or questions on oh Linda Brian. okay oh. uh in
2: first Samuel nineteen so you read verse twelve but I went a little further. <laughs> uh, then it says, "Then McCall took an idol and laid it on the bed, covering it." So yeah. David had idols in his house.
0: It, the word translated "idol" could also it also could mean like a statue or an icon. The, the what? Tra- you get the NASB there.
2: Uh, NIV.
0: NIV. ESV has in the same place a uh, what is it? Verse nineteen, you said.
2: Uh, 13.
0: With a footnote or household god. So it's, it's possible. But this is also more Macaul's household than David's. I mean, he goes there, and she apparently presumably is living near, because the setup was this. Saul is sending David on these raids, hoping that the Philistines will kill him. And so David's not home very much. So if it is an idol, it's certainly not attached with David, as if it's David's idol. It could be McCall has an idol in her household, unbeknownst to David, um, David fl- climbs out the window but no I don't think there's any indication that David has idols that he's worshipping it's either an, an image simply it's an image which could well mean an idol and as my wife and I were chatting about this it's not a painting <laughs> it's some sculpted thing that well, could look like a person in a bed well it has to be
2: big enough to I yeah. mean to, she put it in the bed to right. make it look like he was in the bed yeah. so it has to be pretty good size
0: oh no it's, it's I think the notion of an idol is very likely um, and all sorts of people you'd be surprised at have idols. Rebecca has idols. She steals her father's household idols.
2: Right.
0: And, um, yeah, but nothing directly connected with David that I can see. It's in his house, but McCall is not, I mean, she gets cursed a little bit later as well when she laughs at David for dancing. Um, so she's not exactly a model of faithfulness in the story. Well, it's kind of like the other part that, that 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 got me confused for a little bit was if you read the account, um, uh, what's his name? Um, Doeg is delayed before the Lord. This guy's evil. I mean, Psalm fifty-two. You love evil. I mean, it's about Doeg, and it's just railing against him. So, my best guess would be there, simply in his in his fulfilling his job as the chief herdsman there's something that takes his time there, whether maybe they, the number of animals he was supposed to bring wasn't matching up or whatever, that he's getting delayed before the Lord at Nob. But why, why is Doeg before the Lord? I, I think it just means there at the, at the tent where the ark was, he's been delayed with the priests. But no, it's, it's another one of the, these are, these are messed up people. I mean, at the end of the book of Joshua, don't forget, Joshua three times tells them to get rid of their idols, and they never do. These are the people who just got circumcised. I mean, remember, there's a term for this. It's called henotheism, the belief in many gods with one big central god. So polytheism is a bunch of gods who are basically all equal. Henotheism, there is one big god, but there are lesser gods, Um, and that's what Israel's mostly wrestling with throughout her time up until the Babylonian captivity, which it seems to cure them of it. And so the belief is not that they, when they start worshiping the Ashtaroths and the Baals, it's not as though they think Yahweh doesn't exist anymore. It's just that Baal isn't Yahweh, and he didn't make the heavens and the earth, but Baal can make it rain. Baal can make crops produce. That's the belief, at least, on their part, right? And so you, you, you need your crops, so you hedge your bets, and you've prayed to Yahweh, but well, we can go give some offerings to Baal and, and get some crops that way too. So that seems to be a persistent problem of the Israelites. It may well have been a problem of McCall as well. What? Heno-theism. H-E-N-O. Heno-theism. Um, yeah.
2: Well, because she, I mean, she was Saul's daughter, and he went to the witch, so it doesn't seem that far off. But right.
0: No, but even with the witch, there's an example of this crazy syncretism. I mean, when Saul goes to the witch, go there, it's just bizarre. Um... Because Saul doesn't view going to the witch as completely. <laughs> you and I would think, if you start going to witches and mediums, you've, you would think that you have consciously abandoned serving the God of the Israelites. Um, and there's this bizarre conversation that takes place in 1 Samuel 28 between the witch and Saul. Um, probably one of the most, by the way, frightening verses I've ever read is, is in 28, um, 5 and 6. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams, or by Urim, or by the prophets. He's seeking God, and God has nothing to say to him. Then Saul said to his servant, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And the servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night, and so he said, Divine for me the Spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then do you are you laying a trap for me to bring about my death? And look at this, but Saul swore to her by the Lord. And when you see the Lord in all caps, that's God's covenant name. That's what we call Yahweh or the Tetragrammaton. So Saul is invoking the Lord's covenant name, swearing to her, as Yahweh lives, no punishment shall come upon you for summoning up a, doing necromancy. I mean, it's just absolutely bizarre, the, the syncretism that's going on here. He is invoking the Lord's name, to promise her that he won't punish her according to the law of the Lord as she violates the law of the Lord. It's like, as the Lord lives, you will not be punished for this adultery. I mean, it's something something that bizarre. I mean, that's what he's doing. And he doesn't see, somehow he still thinks he's serving God or something. You know I mean? He, see, he His first response is to go ask the Lord, you know, and he doesn't get it. It's, it's really sad. He You'd think he's you'd you'd think that Saul has concluded I'm done with the Lord I'm going to do my own thing but he somehow is trying to have a foot in both worlds and it's not going to work. Um, Saul has probably committed the, probably the most high handed Old Testament sin when he strikes down the priests at Nob. I mean, even Saul's soldiers won't do it. They're like, oh no way. Dough eggs, I'll do it. <laughs> you know, and, and, um, and he goes and cuts them. Down. I mean, he cuts down the priests. One escapes. And he cuts down their children and their wives. Saul is so, um, Saul is so insecure and afraid of these conspiracies and everyone's plotting against me that he just wipes them out. Um, the priesthood. That's, that's a big deal. So, so yeah, he's, he's a tragic, tragic story.
2: So, I have a question. I mean, he knew that God had taken the kingship away yeah. from him and given it to David when he did all this stuff. Yes. So, why not just say, okay, I'm done, let David take because
0: over Because sin's this. not rational. Doesn't yeah. Satan also know that God is going to defeat him, but Satan's still fighting. Sin's not rational. This is not, like, an intelligent... Sin is never rational. Mm. I mean, there's a sense in which sin is insanity. I mean, um, going against God, Adam and Eve, trusting a snake over the living God, that's crazy. And then once you do sin, I got a plan. We're going to make some fig leaves, and we'll be okay. You know, I mean, no, seriously, it's just stupid. And, And likewise... We engage in the same type of insanity. I mean, we, we come up. We don't like looking it in the face that much. It takes a certain amount of hard heartedness to um, look it in the square in the face and, and to uh, acknowledge it. We we feel much better if we tell ourselves convenient lies. But but Saul is not acting rationally. The whole his stated reason for fighting the Lord is he wants the kingdom for his son Jonathan. Right? That's his stated reason. That's not his real reason. If it were his real reason, he wouldn't have thrown a spear at Jonathan makes no sense um, he 's angry at God he 's angry at God, and he feels sorry for himself. if you look at the encounter with him and Samuel, oh, the people made me do it, and you know all of that and it 's not rational, and this is not rational and in, in fact, one of the most frightening messages i 've ever heard, a guy named Doug Bookman um, he was at the uh, master 's college he did, and he tracks through about ten chapters of first Samuel. Saul's descent into what you can only call madness. And it starts with just that phrase, he began to eye David. And he he gets nervous and he gets insecure. And then he starts kind of putting David in dangerous places. I mean, again, this is how sin works. You don't just start by overtly trying to kill the national hero, but you start putting him in some danger. But oh no, he's winning. and oh, Okay, then you send a sort of assassin squad to his house at night to kill him. And then he lets out the window and then, and then it starts getting worse, and he kills the priest at Nob, and, and then it ends up with him you know, going to the, the uh, witch at Endor, and then finally ends up with him killing himself because he's mortally wounded, and he doesn't want the Philistines to make sport of him, so he, he, he falls on his own sword. And the text says, this is what's frightening, thus the Lord killed Saul. <laughs> I mean, the reader's supposed to see Saul's spiral downward in his ultimate demise as God's judgment on him. I mean, it's terrifying, and and so Bookman just tracks through as you move at each new step of Saul as he gets more and more unhinged. And it, the point of his message to the college students was, don't 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 pamper and hide your sin. Don't don't guard it. It'll devour you. It'll 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 take you with it. It won't just stay there and stay manageable. It will rule you if you don't confess it. Don't don't play around with sin. I mean, it was, I, fifteen years on, I'm still like, yeah. You know, as you're watching Saul, because Saul starts off so promising. So promising. Yeah.
2: So is that why Jonathan had to die as well? Because of God cursing Saul and eliminating his offspring?
0: I don't know, because um, Mephibosheth does okay. Mephibosheth is um, Jonathan's son. And because David promised covenant loyalty to Jonathan, Jonathan gets killed when the Philistines win in battle. And Mephibosheth is his son, and when his nursemaid hears about the death of Saul, the custom at that time is you kill the entire royal family. So she picks the kid up to flee, and she drops him, and he becomes a cripple. And David um, remembers him and invites him to eat at this table and gives him an allotment of food and, and shows loyalty to him. Now later, because Saul put the Gibeonites, I mean, this gets, there's all this twisted stuff. So Saul puts the Gibeonites to death. Do you remember who the Gibeonites were? They're the folks who came out with the moldy bread and the worn-out shoes. They said, oh, we're from a far country. Please make a covenant with us, even though the Lord had said not to make any peace treaties with anyone in the land. Well, the Gibeonites, the peace treaty was made, and they didn't inquire the Lord, but the deal is, okay, then you're going to be perpetual servants for us. Well, Saul just started killing some of them, and this plague comes across Israel, and Based, and so David empires the Lord, and the Lord says, <laughs> Saul broke, his, broke the covenant with the Gibeonites. you got to go figure out what the Gibeonites want and do that. And the Gibeonites have him hang, I think, seven or ten. Anybody? How many of Saul's descendants do they have to hang in the sun um, to get rid of the curse? Seven? Okay. Um, they hang seven. So there there's are a number of Saul's descendants still alive. And, of course, Isp, Ishbosheth makes the, uh, makes, is the general, right, who, there's a civil war for a little bit. It doesn't last very long because eventually his general, Abner, switches sides because um, Ishbosheth insults Abner, and then Abner gets mad and he s- switches sides, and then Joab murders him, which is why my wife said we can't have a kid named Joab, um, or even a dog named Joab. <laughs> um, it's unfair. What? I know, right? <laughs> all right, I'm still holding out for Phineas. We'll see. Um, but uh, anyway, um, or Eleazar or something cool like that. We'll see. Um, no, there's, there's all of this twisted stuff. But, but, so there are descendants of Stahl still alive because there's got to be at least seven of them that can get hung in the sun um, what, to, to appease the Gibeonites, which is what they require. As, as compensation for Saul's betrayal of the covenant with them. Um, which, again, is another picture, by the way, of someone being impaled, removing a curse. It's interesting. like All of that getting hung in the sun stuff is setting up this removal of curse motif that ultimately is going to show up. So it's just interesting that what removes the curse of God over the, the violation of the covenant of the Gibeonites is people being impaled and hung in the sun. Um, Curses is anyone who's hung on a tree. I mean, it's setting up that motif that starts with Phineas impaling Cosby and, Serena, what's the guy's name? You don't remember. Okay, Cosby and uh, the, the guy, the, ha- the head of the house of Judah, who she's fornicating with in the tent, and Phineas spears them. Yeah, but then they hang them up in the sun, and that's the origin of curses is anyone who hangs on a tree. Um, Oh, yeah. But I don't think Jonathan would have been put to death. I, David I don't, certainly wouldn't have. In fact, their whole covenant is Jonathan basically relinquishes any claim he has to the kingdom. I know God's chosen you. I know God has set his seal on you, and I'm casting my lot with you, not my father. So there absolutely would have no reason for David to put Jonathan to death. He'd have, in fact, his whole covenant with Jonathan is Jonathan saying, please promise you'll do well to me. Don't do what normally is done, where you kill off the competition, which is fulfilled when David is, shows kindness to Mephibosheth and bring him into his, his home. So, so, yeah. Okay, questions, further questions on... Oh, oh, what? Zimri and Cosby. The uh,
1: why was um,
2: Dog, the Edomite, so willing to kill all the priests and...
0: David gives us a nice character of uh, sizing up of him in Psalm 52. Let's read it. Because he was wicked. Because he didn't fear God. No, <laughs> I actually have taught Psalm 52. We're doing a couple of passes through the Psalms. My goal is sometime in um, the next you know, five or ten years to finish the Psalms. We've done about 40 of them now. And uh, I intend to keep taking passes through, doing five, ten at a time. Um, and one of the passes we did, we went through, we did Psalm 52. I remember this. I remember, Alex, I was studying this when we were in California. Remember that guy who had tra- we were talking to? He had, we were all talking about Psalm 52. I just It's emblazoned in my mind. It's like, oh, is so the righteous. Yeah, anyway, that guy. This, no, this dude. This was a guy, who was a layman, who taught himself Hebrew. yes. Layman taught himself Hebrew, and we're sitting there, and I'm talking about one of my questions, and he pulls up his notes, and oh, Psalm 52 is one of the passages in Hebrew he's translated. We're just talking about it. I'm just like, this is amazing, this guy. Um, Anyway, so Psalm 52, let me get there, we'll read it, is about Doeg. Um, What's really interesting is he's not mad at He does not mention killing the priests. You'd imagine... If you're going to write a psalm railing against Doeg, you'd say, how dare you? He doesn't mention that. It's really fascinating what David zeroes in on. A masculine of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the household of Ahimelech. This is another one of those absolutely locked on psalm titles. There's only 14 of them. This is one of them. Why do you boast of evil, mighty man? The steadfast love of the Lord endures all day long. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp Razor, you worker of deceit. "'You love evil more than good, "'and lying more than speaking what is right. "'You love all words that devour a deceitful tongue. "'But God will break you down forever. "'He will snatch and tear you from your tent. "'He will uproot you from the land of the living Salah. "'The righteous shall see in fear, "'and shall laugh at him, saying, "'See the man who would not make God his refuge, "'but trusted in the abundance of his riches "'and sought refuge in his own destruction.'" But I'm like a green tree in the house of God, and I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. What's interesting is he actually zeroes in on his condemnation of Doeg on deceit and treachery and plotting. And if you read the narrative, Doeg does not tell Saul at his first opportunity of David being there. And so you you put the accusations of 52 together with what actually happens, and it looks as though Doeg is waiting for the right time to to basically get uh, Saul really up in a a further about this. And in fact, we we only hear of um, Ahimelech giving David the bread and the sword, and yet Saul says, and why did you inquire of the Lord for him? Which is likely an addition Doeg made. Oh, Saul, you... Ahimelech was really helping David. I mean, So it seems as, so you get from this that, that Doeg is trying to manipulate the situation and rile up Saul to get him to do this. It actually is his intent for some sort of thing like this massacre to happen. And that seems to be the accusations of Psalm 52. David is not, it's, it's, it struck me when I was studying this, why on earth isn't David saying, how dare you touch the priesthood? Well, David's getting at something more foundational. You plotted and planned this. So, I think we're to see Doeg as actually very skillfully manipulating an unstable Saul. I mean, Saul goes back and forth. Some days he's like, No, no, David, you're righteous. I mean, one of the times when David comes to him and says, Hey, here's a piece of your robe. I could have struck you down. I didn't. David, you are more righteous than me. You shall live. And he goes home. And then he changes his mind. And so Saul is really unstable, and with Doeg not telling him at his first opportunity, and you take what Psalm 52 says, it looks as though Doeg's waiting for Saul to be on a bad day, on a fearful day, to then get Saul to think everyone's plotting against him. I mean, Saul eventually just thinks everyone is conspiring against him, and he doesn't trust anybody. And so why does he not do it? I think because that was his intent from the beginning. Here's a guy who hates the priesthood. I mean, he, and he's working with him. He's bringing the animals in. That's his job. And for whatever reason, he just despises them. Does not fear to do what Saul's soldiers did fear to do. What? Oh, sorry. Okay. Okay. Other questions? Other thoughts? Yeah, Israel's it, history, 1st, 2nd Samuel, is fascinating, all the stuff that's going on. I mean, it really is fascinating stuff. Um, yes. Yes. Ooh.
1: Mine's kind of more of an application question, so oh. is that okay to move Application's on to specific quite okay, is that? Yes. textual things? Um, it was towards the end when you were, or the part when you were talking about, like, um, we should share God's blessings on us and, you know, tell other people so they can praise God, too. And sometimes when I'm around my coworkers and they either, like, commend me for something or I want to, like, tell them about something great that's going on with my family or something like that, I'll think or I'll say, like, you know, yeah, it's awesome. Like, this was not going well and then, like, God changed it and, you know, it's really kind of miraculous. And to someone who isn't a believer or maybe just isn't used to hearing that, sometimes that just makes the conversation awkward and they just, like, switch the subject or something like that. So it's like, how do I... Want to point them to God and not just you know leave God out of it, but do it in a way that doesn't just kill the conversation. You know, or how do I follow up on that? You know.
0: Okay, no, great question. in the In the context of Psalm thirty four, in the most immediate instance, I think he's assuming we're telling other believers, but but what you're saying is a secondary, I think, application. So in the first instance, he's talking about the humble will hear and be glad, which. The humble are the righteous humble. Um, he's going to get to uh, his, he's, he's assuming in this psalm, he's talking to the righteous because he says, um, let's go, this poor man, verse 9, O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. Young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord suffer no good thing. So the, the assumption, at least in the first instance, is this psalm is David speaking to other followers of God. But the implication of verse 1, I'll bless the Lord at all times, means when, even when I'm at work with the Canaanites, right? Um, so I don't know if my application of sharing God's blessings and goodness is directed at make sure you're always doing that with your unbelieving friends, but your speech should be giving God praise and glory in every context. I mean, it, we shouldn't talk one way with Christians and one way with non-Christians. We should talk one way, and finding ways to not be offensive or as inoffensive as possible—not to rub it in someone's face—but also finding a way, to, like I'm going to, you know, praise. I was—you can say think I've been so blessed that generally doesn't make people get upset. You know, um, you know, finding ways that you're giving God glory, you're you're, you're being faithful, but you're not provoking them you know, is is probably going to be what you need to do. And without knowing who your coworkers are, what the specific situation is, I don't know how best to counsel you in that regard. But as regards to the relating of God's saving acts, in Psalm 34, at least, it seems limited to this righteous, his saints, those who fear him, um, which is why I was trying to link it to. This is one of the things we do when we gather together is we encourage each other. by let me tell you, I mean, because I'm guessing... A mixture of us in this room right now, some of us are in the fire, some of us are in the trial, and some of us have been delivered from it. And as those who have experienced a recent blessing or deliverance speak of it, it's going to give encouragement and hope to those who are awaiting such a, such a deliverance. And, that, and in that way, all of us get encouraged, right? So if, if you're down, if you're, if you're, being, if you're you know, on your way to Gath, as it were, <laughs> you haven't quite gotten there yet, but you're on your way somebody who's come out of it is going to encourage you. And that's the nature of this. David's saying, hey, look at my deliverance, trust God, and experience blessings too, right? That's, that's He keeps moving from his private experience to corporate implications. And so that's what we're doing. But at work, it, it's going to take more nuance and also... No, but Carrie wants to say something. Okay, so from an application point to like piggyback off of that, if yeah. you're counseling somebody who's struggling with being like... One of the righteous, humble,
2: mm-hmm. like
0: what advice or what counsel would you give them if they're struggling to like rejoice with those that you know are in that place um, that's a that's a great a great question um, if you are struggling at someone else 's blessing um, i 'd start by recognizing that as a problem i 'd recognize that as uh, not good and then biblically try to track the root of it. Now people could do that for different reasons. Probably the most common reasons are um, older brother syndrome. Um, the older brother, right? He's got a works relationship with his father. I've worked in the field all these years. You've never slacked. Slug- I mean no, this is the perfect example, right? This is the this is the uh, the, the faithful hard-working son is mad because this this dirtbag who wished you were dead, squandered his inheritance with prostitutes and with drunkenness, he comes back and he says he's sorry and he's used up his inheritance. He wasted it. Tough. Oh, you put a ring on his finger and you gave him a bull. You've never done that for me and I've worked hard for you. I haven't done that. What gives? Um, and, and so from a Christian standpoint, it might be, you know, I've been faithful, I've been trying to do what's right and the things that I want, the things, my goals, my my... My desires are not being fulfilled. And here's this person who just became a Christian last week, and everything's lining up for him. What gives? Right? I mean, that, 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 that's what... There are many reasons we could struggle with rejoicing with those who rejoice. That's one I can think of. It's the older brother. And I think the, the solution for the older brother is to recognize the heart of the Father, to share in his joy, um, and to, to recognize what the Father says to him. All that I have is yours. Um, So the father says to the older brother, look, you have me, you've had me, he he hasn't, you've had me at all times, and all that I have is yours, Um, and probably also recognizing some sort of ingrained belief in a work system where if you do your devotions and you do what's right, then you you turn the crank and out comes the blessings that you want, and mad or anger or resentment or bitterness that someone else is getting the things you want and you're not getting them. That's, that'd be one thing. Um, also, the link to the humility, right? Um, humility is opposed to pride or self-righteousness. And again, probably if, if you're struggling with rejoicing at someone else's blessings, it's probably because you think you deserve more than you get. You're not marveling at grace. You're not marveling that... Um, you're not in hell. That I'm not in hell, and and that sounds easy to say. But I'm saying taking time to actually pray, work through that, think through that, um, is is helpful. We we all can be, tend to think we're entitled to more than we get. I mean, C.S. Lewis has a great example of two two different people are put in a dingy hotel room. One was expecting to go to a five star resort and gets put in this dingy hotel room with peeling paint on the walls and one lamp and a, and an old bed. Another got smuggled out of a concentration camp and is told, you got to stay here for a week till we can get you out of country. And those two people are going to have very different experiences in that room based on what they are expecting and what they thought they deserved. Um, And so a lot of it comes down to our expectations and and, and not being marveling at grace. It's a a huge question you're asking me. It's a huge question. Um, And that's a five-minute dipping my toe into it, but we we can talk more. But... uh, no, one of, the, one of the things we should do is be, rejo- be rejoicing with those who rejoice and be weeping with those who weep. And I'd say the last piece, that would just be being in other people's lives. Um, if, if you've been praying with somebody, we've, we've all been praying for, for the Ludwigs, right? Trust we have. And so I can't imagine there's anyone, maybe there is, who's not rejoicing at Blanche's recovery. But other people in our church have been sick and they didn't recover and they died, right? Um, and that wasn't what, what God did. And so I wouldn't want for a second to let's not tell people about Blanche's recovery because that might be hard for someone who lost a loved one, right? Um, but it might be. And, and if, you, if you lost someone you care about and you're struggling with why didn't God do what he did with Blanche to, to my husband or wife or child or whatever, um, there are psalms that deal with that as well. Like Psalm uh, 73 but again, the answer of Psalm seventy-three, which is in vain, is the, go to go to Psalm seventy-three. Let's let's go there. Um, which is, Kerry, you know, asked a great question. It's a huge question, um, and so I'm wrestling with how how big of an answer to give. But uh, Psalm seventy-three deals with um, the temptation to think, "Why have I been faithful to God?" When all these other people get blessings and I don't, and in Psalm 73, it's not just other believers. Here, it's the wicked are prospering. The really the worst case scenario is the wicked are prospering. Um, at least, at least the prodigal son's brother sees his brother repentant, right? At least, at least in the prodigal son scenario, that this other person who's coming and getting the ring and getting the the the, uh, the feast thrown for him is at least repentant and reconciled to his father. Psalm 73, Truly God is good to Israel, to those pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My step had nearly slipped. Then he's going to tell you how. For I was envious of the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And then he recounts why he's envious. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes swell out with their fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. Their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, people turn back and find no fault. The people praise them for this. They, they should be shamed, and they're lauded. I mean, you go to even look on the, you know, the, the news pages now, and it's just celebrating people that we should be aghast at. They scoff and speak of malice. Um, Therefore, people turn back to them and find no fault with them. They say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain, I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. That's the temptation. So, why am I bothering to worship the Lord when these people who hate him and do whatever they want get blessed? was just pointless? For all day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So he, he's this close to openly saying that. That's what's wrestling within his heart. And that's what he means when he says in verse 3, in verse 2, I, I almost stumbled. So if I'd really embraced this, and if I'd really said this, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to wear some task. So I basically was saying this: I knew that wasn't right. I knew that was the wrong answer. I knew saying there's no point in serving God was wrong. But I still couldn't figure it out. I couldn't figure out how to make sense of this until I went to the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Which is to say, he stops looking at this life only, and he looks at this life and the next life. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment. By the way, their end is the same word used for afterward in verse 24. That's going to be important. Um, So, Until I discerned their afterwards, or their end. They're destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When your soul wasn't when my soul was embittered, I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you, and you hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel. And afterward, and that's the direct contrast, seventeen. He's looking at the afterward of the wicked, hell and 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 complete erasure of their memory from the earth. Afterward, you'll receive me to glory, and ultimately, what he's going to find satisfaction in is not God's gifts, but God Himself. Whom have I but heaven, but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. So ultimately, what's the answer to the problem of evil and the problem of unfulfilled desire and the problem of other people prospering? The answer is you get God, which is the answer the Father gives. I've, I've been with you this whole time. And so, so Asaph, who writes Psalm 73, says there's a two-part answer. Here and now, whatever, whatever, whatever difficulties I get now, whatever uh, affliction I get now, I still get God now. And afterwards, I get glory. And that is ultimately the, the what, my, oh, my mom, oh, dear. Wait, wait she wants a microphone. We need to uh, give my mom a microphone. He said nervously.
2: Can you take Mary and Martha and, and talk about that?
0: Can I? I probably can. Uh, what are you getting at, Mom? I'm not sure I followed entirely.
2: Carrie's question.
0: Mary and Martha and Carrie's question. Okay. Jesus is in their house, and Mary is at his feet listening to him, and Martha's in the kitchen, and Martha says, Hey, why don't you let me do all the work? Tell her to come and give me a hand. And Jesus says, Mary's chosen the better part and it will not be taken from her. There... Mary Martha is taking work upon herself that she doesn't need to take upon herself, and she's begrudging her sister who is sitting at Jesus' feet, and Jesus gently rebukes her for it. What's I'm not sure. Well, her her rationale is it needed to be done. And so since it needs to be done, why can't we split the force? And Jesus doesn't say you're right, it needs to be done, so yeah, do your share too. Jesus' answer only makes sense if the work didn't need to be done, I think. Yeah. Right. right. We know he could have done that, yes. No, no, because Martha's rationale works if the work has to be done. If, if there's a certain, if there's X amount of work that needs to be done, then why can't we split it up? Then everyone gets to have a share at sitting okay. at Jesus' feet, and everyone gets a share in the kitchen. That is not Jesus' answer. Um, so, what are you getting at, Mom? Oh, she's shaking her head now. Okay. That was a near miss. We're almost done. We're all, okay. Any, any other questions? Yes. Elsa.
2: I'm coming back to talking to the Philistines at work. Um, I felt that way as well until I heard, you know, Lee Strobel? I heard him say once, um, there was a guy he worked with that he kept on evangelizing and evangelizing and always felt God wanted him to speak to this man. and And the guy would get so angry with him. And he did this a couple of times and the guy was ready to punch him. And all the time what was happening, there was another guy sitting a couple of cubes away working late. And he would hear Lee speak to this guy. And he got saved through that. And he came to Lee afterwards and said, it's because of your persistence with this man that I heard the gospel. And I thought to myself, you know, that is wonderful because it may not. Right. Be the person right. we're talking to all the time right. that needs to hear the gospel. There may right. be somebody just overhearing it.
0: No, no, you're right. Well, and Zach, one other thing, Zach, um, you're going to be hard pressed to offend. I mean, I suppose in today's world, I mean, where people like are professionally offended, um, like, what do you do for a living? I get, a, like, what do you do for a living? I get offended on the internet, um, right? That's I mean, that's not too far from the truth. But you're going to have a hard time offending someone. It'll be difficult if what you're saying is things like, how was your weekend, Zach? Oh, God is good. I, I am blessed. It's, you're not really shoving it in their face, but you're praising God with your tongue. If you say things like that, um, they, they may sort of talk to you less. But you're going to be hard-pressed. Human resources isn't going to have much to say to you if that's what you're doing. Oh, I'm blessed. God is good. God is good. Oh, I had a great time. My church family over the weekend was great. had a great time. Um, if you're saying stuff like that again, I, I, I'm amazed at what people are offended at these days, um, and uh, and just the way that people get upset and offended about things, and then offended about the things that offend other people. And no, I mean, there's it's to some degree it's almost funny watching them devour each other. Um, Zeb, you were telling about Alyssa Milano and how she came out mad about Alabama, but she'd said something that upset the transgender people. So then they called her out on that. And then she had a... Poly- it's just... People are just offended at people being offended at people being offended. And so there's a sense of which, what can you do to not offend someone? Today's age, Zach? Nothing. <laughs> nothing. No. Um, yeah. But uh, you can certainly try to be wise and season your words with salt and... Try to be ready to give everyone an answer for the hope that's within you. Bring cookies. cookies. Yeah. No, and the expectation is just, Zach, the the real expectation is that the unbelievers around us at the very least should know we have a hope they don't have. Because what Peter is envisioning is being ready to give an answer for the hope that's within us. So that doesn't necessarily mean you're not being paid at work to get in someone's face and evangelize them. You're not. Now, if you have the opportunity, awesome, go for it. But at the very least, as you're having a small talk, you can make it clear you have a hope they don't have. And you can hopefully, through, through as they watch you suffer and persevere and act in faith, they may one day say, dude, how do you, how do, you do that? Um, you know, in, in, and that's what Peter's envisioning. We are at time. I can sit around for a few more minutes, but uh, God bless and have a good day.